Yeah. Uh. We gotta, gotta rise up. Rise up. Yo. Go for broke, give everything, better yet, give your all. They don't wanna see you win, nevertheless, yo, evolve. Wanna see my demise, you gonna be in for a surprise. Cause the sun ain't about to set, now it's about to rise. Come hell or high water, we gotta rise up. Despite the storm. All right, what's going on, everybody? I want to welcome you to this week's episode of the Stages Mind podcast presented to you by Double ETV. I'm your host, Taryn Till. Today is my honor and privilege to bring to the program um, counselor, uh, sex therapist, and model Sherry Socks. Sherry, how are you doing today? Great. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, it's a privilege and honor to have you on the program today. Uh, we'll start it off. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, one thing I did want to make the distinction and people, uh, they make this mistake a lot. I'm not a sex addiction therapist. I'm not a sex therapist. I'm a sex addiction therapist. And there's actually a big difference in those things. Okay. Okay. Well, um, I live in uh, the Gulf Coast area. I just moved here in August of last year. And so something that I'm really excited about is um, we didn't talk about this before, but my husband and I own a Brazilian jiu-jitsu gym with another black belt from Louisiana. And so my therapy office is in the same building as our jiu-jitsu gym. And it's been a dream of mine for a long time to put like trauma therapy together with like some kickboxing and jiu-jitsu. And so um, that's finally starting to happen. So I'm really excited about that. Um, but I am 48 years old. I have um, one birth child and three stepkids. And, and let's see, in June, I will have been married for 15 years. Okay. Okay. All right. So um, tell us a little bit about your time in, in college. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of times that kind of propels people to where they are uh, at later stages in life. Uh, why did you choose uh, psychology as your undergrad and social work uh, when you went to graduate school? Well, it took me about 10 years to get that degree in psychology, and it's because I kept on chasing careers that I thought would make me money instead of worrying about if I actually liked the work. And so that's why it it took me so long. Um, My son was born in 1998, and after I had him, like I wanted to get things wrapped up you know, with school, because I needed to be able to, you know, be available for him and also financially support him. And so I went to my advisor and we looked at all my credits, you know, over the past however many years. Uh And um, my desire was always to help people. And so we, when we were looking at my credits, we realized that uh, psychology and philosophy, and I ended up with a minor in English, that those were the things that I did best in and that I enjoyed. Okay. Okay. Um, And what made you want to get into counseling? Well, there was a lady, my very first day, I used to work at uh, the Department of Human Resources. It's kind of hard to get a job with just a degree in psychology. And so you kind of take what you can get. So I ended up at uh, DHR and there was a lady there. They let me shadow her my very first day and she had a master's in social work. And I got to sit in in a meeting with her with a family where abuse and neglect had occurred. And she ran that meeting. And so by the time I walked out of there, I was like, I want to be like her. I want to know what she knows and I want to do what she does. And so, you know, in DHR, I guess that's in a lot of ways, it's more of like a macro focus and I like the micro. And so counseling was just a natural fit for me because I had done so much of it myself. Okay. Now, in your time over the years of counseling people, um, have some of the people that you've helped uh, been empaths? And uh, how do you kind of, um, you know, help someone who has that type of um, um, makeup, you know, as far as, you know, their um, personalities? Well, empaths is... Uh, a term that I encounter a lot in my therapy practice and maybe the viewpoint that I have on it is not the popular one, but anyone that has any kind of compulsive behavior or addictive behavior, they always have trauma. So any of us 
people that you run into that specialize in any kind of addiction, we're also trauma therapists because they go together. So um, my perception of an empath is somebody that probably grew up um, having to spend a lot of brain power, especially as a child, to scan all the adults in the room to kind of keep themselves safe. And so as adults, even though we may not need all of those behaviors to keep ourselves safe anymore, we find ourselves still engaging in them. And so lots of times you'll see empaths instead of like kind of being drawn to the people in the room that are the happiest, lots of times they'll be drawn to the people in the room that are not the happiest. So that can be not a lot of fun for them. But the more trauma work that, uh, you know, people that have those kinds of issues, the more trauma work that they do, the more that they are able to have some good boundaries and not let other people's moods impact them so much. Okay. Uh, Now, in your career, uh, what was your time like working as a child service aide? I worked at um, DHR for almost six years. And so your average person lasts there two or three years. Wow. Um, I learned so much there that I really draw upon now um, because I don't work with kids anymore. Um, But the adults that I encounter, like they can kind of tell me a few little things about their childhood and I can just fill in the rest because I've already seen it all. Um, after I worked at DHR, I got burned out, but I didn't know it because I'd never been burned out before. And so I had to step back after that for a while and do some good self-care. And, you know, part of the self-care that I, that I do now is like, I don't watch the news unless it's bad weather, Mm. because I have like a Rolodex in my mind of all those terrible things that I, I saw. Um, and so I just, I don't need to, you know, get all that going, but I, I do tell my new patients and most of them laugh. I tell them that between working at DHR for almost six years and being a certified sex addiction therapist for the past three years, I've seen it all and done the rest. So anything that they would want to talk about, it might embarrass them, but I don't know if I can be embarrassed anymore. I think that ship has sailed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so how, how, you know, how did you, um, you know, balance or kind of view your time uh, being a, a child service aide um, until you propel into being a social worker? Uh, kind of like, what's the difference? Well, um, we called ourselves, uh, like at DHR, I was mostly what was called an ongoing worker. Hmm. And so you can have that job with a degree in psychology, Um, But there was actually an interesting situation that was going on while I was working at DHR. There was um, a situation where Jefferson County DHR had gotten sued by a child's family and the child had the initials RC and DHR picked him up and put him in foster care due to allegations from a non-custodial parent saying that um, the home that the child was living in did not have, uh, I think, like power or water or something like that. And that was found later not to be true. But they picked that child up and they put him probably in a group home or something like that. And they lost him for about three months. Mm. So his family didn't get to see him. And so any kind of problems that he had as a result of, you know, whatever had gotten him involved, those were exponentially increased because of what DHR did. So as part of the settlement, there were a lot of changes that um, they called the RC consent decree. And part of those changes was that um, workers like me that had a degree in psychology or, you know, whatever, if we got a certain level of um, satisfaction on our yearly reviews, we would be eligible to go get our master's in social work. And so that's what I did. It was a great gift to me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, You know, like you said earlier, you know, about seeing some of the things that you've seen over the years in that line of work. um, What would you say is like one of the root causes that lead to a child being placed in, in a foster home? 
Well, based on what I saw at my DHR, most of the time it was substance abuse, unfortunately. Mm. Um, and it's, it's sad, you know, kind of knowing what I know now about like how important attachment is from like birth to two. If a child doesn't attach to a primary caretaker from birth to two, nothing good will come of that. And so that attachment style is actually something that I have to assess, you know, working with my, my sex addicts. And so, you know, what would happen a lot of times is, um, you know, a, a child would be born at the hospital, the mom and or the child would test positive for drugs, and then that child would be removed. And so that attachment would be disrupted from the very beginning. And sometimes it just never came back together. And so I think about that, um, and I'm sure to assess that when I'm working with, with my adults is, you know, what was going on in your home when you were a child? And, you know, substance abuse, unfortunately, is just rampant. It's probably rampant everywhere, but I saw it, you know, it was, like I said, 75% of the cases at my DHR. Right. Now, let's say if a child is placed in a foster home or whatever, and the parents are, are great, you know, they're doing all they can to love that child or whatever. Uh, do you find sometimes, no matter how great the parents may be, um, sometimes they still, you know, you know kind of looking for their natural birth parents or still oh. kind of don't, don't feel 100% um, accepted because it's not their real mom or father? Yes, I have a lot of therapy patients that you know, that is their, their issue. And, you know, based on what I've seen personally, which is, you know, not representative of the whole, um, but the, the children that were adopted as very young infants that never went and found their birth family, they tend to do the best. Okay. Um, but, you know, that is, you know, something that all of us, you know, want to know is, who are we? And we get a lot of um, who we are from our, our parents. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the time when, uh, when children that are adopted, when they go back and, and reconnect with their birth family, they still kind of see the issues that led to them being adopted in the first place. And there's just so much, it's just so emotionally charged. It's hard. Um, it's hard to kind of separate that out. One of my favorite quotes is from um, the Dune series. It's a book. And one of the characters says, the first victim of strong emotion is reason. Mm. That's powerful. Yeah. So making, you know, making those decisions when I'm like really emotionally, whatever, I'm probably not going to be logical yeah. when I look back later. Right. Let me ask you one more question about um, your time as a, a social worker and child service aide, um, kind of transitioning to um, you know other things that you do as well. If unresolved issues occur in someone's life when they're a child, does that kind of kind of follow them throughout most of their life? That that oh seen? yes, yes, it does, and it's it's so interesting because um, so many people that I get as patients, the reason why they come and see me is because they hate their work okay, or they hate the dynamics at work, like more commonly. And so those unresolved childhood issues are always like in the background of our mind. We don't even realize it. Um, just from like doing my own personal work, I realize that I am the marionette of all of my, you know, childhood issues. And so people tend to recreate those same dynamics in their work family and with their friends and in their, um, their family that they create themselves. And so that's the thing about those issues is they want to be resolved. So they come up again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And so people usually can't resolve them by themselves. And so what I do with trauma memories is a technique that's called EMDR, and that stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprogramming. And it sounds like a bunch of woo-woo crap, but it works with about 
I would say 85% of the people that I try it with. And if that doesn't work, I have other things. But what that does, what EMDR is, is it's a way to reprocess trauma memories just by thinking about them and not talking about them. Because talking about trauma is re-traumatizing. So 99.9% of my sex addicts were sexually abused as children. Nobody wants to talk about that. But that's exactly those memories need to be reprocessed so that they are not finding themselves uh, doing trauma reenactment and things like that in the present. Okay. Um, your bio, you know, is very powerful reading it. Now, one of the things that I was re- really excited to talk to you about, especially, um, you know, my father was a um, uh, served in the Marine Corps for several years, you know, he passed away uh, about two years ago, but what was it like, um, you know, counseling soldiers and and veterans and and helping them? Oh, they're some of my favorite people. They just have the best stories. You know, that's one of the things that I really love about my day job is it's never, ever boring. So um, it was very new for me to be working with uh, veterans or service members, like that was not really a group that I had encountered before. And so I was working in an inpatient substance abuse facility and they just moved me. They just put me in there. And so um, I just connected with them immediately and it took me a while to figure it out. Um, And again, this is just based on, you know, my experience with the limited amount of people that I worked with. But the soldiers that I worked with at that inpatient substance abuse facility, they were my little grown-up DHR children. They went into the military searching for that sense of family because they didn't have it. So they came like preloaded, or maybe a lot of them already had post-traumatic stress disorder and things like that. And so you'll see a lot of substance abuse with people that have post-traumatic stress disorder because they need help like managing those symptoms and alcohol and drugs will do it. But then there's like a whole nother set of problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I loved it. Right. You know, what, what are some of the stereotypes um, that people uh, associate with counseling? Um, and then what makes it kind of easier for some people to say, Hey, it's okay for me to go ahead and I, I need to talk to somebody. I have some unresolved issues kind of like that. Um, saying that um kind of like the the first step like hey i need help well unfortunately you know what i've been told by people that are in the military that are still interested like in a career there um i have been told that if they seek out mental health help for themselves that that will basically torpedo their career mm. and of course you know the va is not known for having the mm. best mental health services right so um lots of times that group is very resistant and i i totally understand that but it seems like the younger that people are the more receptive that they are to you know counseling type things and you know counseling has gotten such a bad rap over the years and in many different situations and you know I, i totally understand that but I also got to work with um, the geriatric population in an intensive outpatient situation at the hospital. Mm -hmm. And it was so funny because, um, you know, everybody there knew that I was a certified sex addiction therapist. So talking about stuff like that, you know, I just don't care about it anymore. And so um, things would come up with, uh, you know, the, um, the geriatric patients being sexually active. So I would get to talk to them, you know, their families, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, that group historically does not usually buy into counseling and stuff like that. But once they found themselves in it, you know, lots of them would do uh, would do really well. Okay. Uh, what what are the root causes of anxiety and PTSD? Well, probably we're going back to trauma you know, again, for the, the post-traumatic stress disorder. And there's, there's big T and then there's little T when we're talking about trauma, big trauma and little trauma. Big trauma is like, um, you know, your uh, house burning up, 
uh, let's see, um, being in a terrible car accident, um, you know, uh, seeing somebody die or um, experiencing like, um, you know, childhood sexual abuse, like that's like big T. But little T is like, um, you know, sometimes you're a dad, right? No, I'm not. Oh, you're not? Okay. But you've had pets, right? Yes. Yes. So, you know, like when a pet or even a child, when they're born, they just pop out with their personality. Mm -hmm. Like it just, it is what it is. And so like, if you have a child that's very sensitive, that's maybe born, say, into a military family that it's kind of, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So that child's experience, you know, feeling deeply, being sensitive about things, if those feelings are like, you need to get over it, you know, uh, you're being too extra or that's invalidation. And so that could be an example of little T, those kind of things happening over and over again. So it only takes a few of the big T's to get post-traumatic stress disorder. It takes more of the little T's and most people have a combination, but that's how you get post-traumatic stress disorder is you have those cumulative traumatic experiences, but anxiety, um, some people are just born with a predisposition to being anxious. And then some people just develop it. Like um, it's hard to have like chronic depression or PTSD or like something like that and not have anxiety with it because there's that element of, you know, I'm different than everybody else. You know, I don't know what's going to happen to me tomorrow, like, like how I'm going to feel. So lots of times anxiety just comes along for the ride. Okay. All right. So we, we've referenced several times about, um, you know, your position as a sex addiction therapist. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Well, um, lots of people will ask me why in the world would you get into that? Um, and so at DHR, you know, we were talking about probably like upwards of 75% of the cases that I was involved in was because of substance abuse. Mm. Well, I would say a good 75% of the cases that I worked on were also childhood sexual abuse. So I had already seen all of the terrible stuff. And so um, sexual offenders and sex addicts are not necessarily the same people. If somebody has touched a child, they have to see somebody else. Like I can't, you know, do any of that. Mm. But I knew that there were people out there that were sex addicts that needed help. And so, you know, let it begin with me. Let the change begin with me because I've already seen everything. And plus, I got to meet a sex addiction therapist and it was kind of like me meeting that lady that had her master's in social work. Mm -hmm. Like the way that that sex addiction therapist understood trauma, I was like, I want to know what they know and I want to do what they do. But the training to be um, a certified sex addiction therapist is long and expensive. So some people, you know, they just can't, they can't do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I find that I work just as much with the adult children of sex addicts and their spouses, because once the spouse figures out what their sex addict has been up to, that can be deeply traumatizing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I got a couple of um, some, some deep <laughs> questions to ask you about that. So okay. number one, what is sexual addiction? And then number two, um, how would someone know that, that they are that? Those are excellent questions. And I get those all the time. So sex addiction is just like any other addiction. If a person's sexual behavior is causing them trouble at work, at home, at church, with the law, with their friends, like, there's lines there. And, you know, so that's how somebody knows that, um, that they're a sex addict. And so what was the, the second part of your question? Yeah. Um, when someone is like, I guess at what point does someone realize that they need help? Is it like they're kind of out of control with it or. 
many times they don't seek help until like something major has happened. Um, you know, there's just so much shame connected with that. Um, 60% of sex addicts are men and 40% are women. Mm. And so you really don't see many women accessing treatment or in the 12 step meetings, you know, for, for whatever reason. But one thing I did want to talk about is the sex addiction. I think of it as an umbrella and there are people that fall under the umbrella that you may not have thought about. So, um, on one end is the sex addicts that act out. Like they are the ones that are having affairs. They are the ones, um, that are, you know, revealing themselves in public, they're acting out. On the other end is sexual anorexics. They are also obsessed with sex, just like the acting out sex addicts, but they are obsessed with avoiding it. They are trying to avoid thoughts of sex. They don't want to have sex with other people. And so the thing that these two groups have in common is they are really afraid of that intimacy. So it's an intimacy disorder. So something has happened to them, trauma, where it has made them not be comfortable with just trusting one person. Like the sexual anorexics like to, if they do like to have sex, they like to have sex with people that they don't know very well, just like the sex addicts. So that's, or the the acting out sex addicts. Mm -hmm. And so the usual presentation for a sex addict is somebody that goes between sexual anorexia and sexual acting out they think when they're in sexual anorexia that that's healthy sexuality but it's not another group that falls under the umbrella is people that prefer to masturbate to porn rather than have contact with a real person and so there is a special group within that group um you know like uh kids that are in their 20s that grew up with the internet. I mean, porn was just a click away. They grew up with that. A lot of them chose to meet their sexual needs through that venue, and they completely took themselves out of all of that uncomfortable, you know, junior high and high school, you know, courtship and fumblings and embarrassment. You know, they just opted out of that. And so then when they get to be you know, in their mid to late 20s, they see all of their peers getting married, having long-term relationships, having children, and they can't, they don't even know where to begin. Okay. Now, do you think um, over the years with, um, you know, doing this, that number one, do you think some people may have like I guess, fetishes or desires and things like that, that they are afraid to discuss with their spouse or, or significant other because of, of shame or feel like, you know, the other person may think they're weird. So the fit fetish is the most common fetish. Mm. And so um, you see behaviors about fit or all of the fetishes increase like with the, the fear of like sexually transmitted diseases. So they have an interesting relationship. But the thing to remember about sex addicts is one of the um, features of addiction that make it unique is it grows worse over time. So somebody might start out with, you know, really liking, you know, porn, say, and it's got girls that have a clown nose on. Well, they'll get tired of that after a while and then they'll move on to something else. And so it just becomes more and more specialized. But yeah, people do have a lot of shame, you know, about the, the fetishes. And it's so interesting because um, John Money did a lot of work um, to talk about and discover what's called our love map and our arousal template. And so that gets done like kind of smack dab in the middle of our formative years, which are two to 10. And so that's where you see those fetishes actually having their roots. Hmm. I, I think it's just fascinating. Right. Now, when you spoke earlier about the, you know, the porn or whatever, um, what, what type of uh, damage can that have in someone's uh, marriage or relationship? You know, uh, are they kind of, I guess, even when they're with their spouse, their mind is somewhere else. 
Well, so one thing you didn't ask, but I wanted to mention was I think COVID has made the porn issue even bigger than it was. Mm. Um, just because, you know, people weren't getting out and, mm. you know, stuff like that. But um, so people that are married that watch porn, if they are a sex addict, they get to the place where it's easier to have their sexual needs met through turning on their computer, going to that site, you know, watching whatever they want to watch and taking care of their sexual needs that way. Um, but with a spouse, you know, you have to treat them nice. You might have to, you know, buy them some flowers or wine and dine or whatever. And that's a bigger time commitment than just turning on the computer. Mm -hmm. um, but what the real issue is, is intimacy. Intimacy is when I'm vulnerable and open and honest on purpose to deepen the relationship. And so remember, sex addicts, they are not good at intimacy. So a lot of them would rather masturbate to porn than have sex with their spouse mm. because of the intimacy. Right. Um, let me ask you a question. What... Um... Do you think people make certain mistakes sometimes like in courtship where um, they're not kind of like as transparent or communicative as they as they should be? And then maybe if the other person kind of knew from the get go, if you were kind of honest about maybe whatever desires you have or something that may have transpired in your life, it would be a little easier for the spouse to kind of already know what's going on opposed to you know, they just find out, you know, five years into the marriage, oh my God, you know, this person is into this or why would you ask me that or whatever? So um, have you seen that as a, like a problem? So again, we're talking about intimacy. That's taking a huge chance and being vulnerable for me yeah. to share something, you know, touchy like yeah. that with, with somebody else. Um, but and I do spend a lot of time with my, my patients after they've, you know, gotten some recovery talking about when is it time to tell, mm. you know, cause a lot of them have sexually transmitted diseases and, you know, that's some, something that somebody needs to know, you know, upfront, or, you know, when do you tell them that um, you're a recovering sex addict, you know, yeah, those are, are real issues, but it's hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I say that honesty is the best policy. And, you know, usually my rule of thumb is just to tell them and tell them sooner rather than later. And then that way, if it's something that they can't tolerate, then you won't be more invested. Okay. Uh, now, what, when people are um, addicted to, to sex, um, how do they view sex uh, if they are married or in a committed relationship with somebody? That's a, a very interesting take. And so with that, we get more into the classic sex addiction therapy. So, of course, when somebody is married and they're a sex addict seeking recovery, we want for them to have sex with their spouse. Mm. And so basically, we kind of start out with um, some things that increase that intimacy um, like we kind of, we concentrate on, um, like rebuilding the trust. The trust is the most important thing. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, once that trust is rebuilt, that's a fertile ground for a good marriage to take place. And, you know, something that's interesting is, um, when sex addicts tell their spouses what they've been up to. If they can tell them all at once, like tell them everything and not do what we call a staggered disclosure, tell them a little bit and a little bit more, most of the time the spouse will stay with them if they, you know, commit to recovery. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, that's very interesting and it's also very encouraging. Right. Yeah. It kind of seems like sometimes too, whether whatever kind of addiction people have, I guess sometimes that, that fear or, or shame is there or feeling like they may be judged or whatever. Um, so I asked earlier, you know, like how important is communication and, and like, like all of this or whatever, because I think, you know, I think you already said it, like trust sometimes is like a big issue for people. Yes. 
and so you know that's um some recovery work that ends up happening a lot is you know people that grow up with untrustworthy adults then they get used to being around people that are not trustworthy mm-hmm. so then when they're adults they tend to form relationships with people that aren't trustworthy so learning to pick out people that are trustworthy and then having relationships with them that's very important mm-hmm. and it's a skill it's a skill that a lot of people you know just kind of take for for granted but you know if you grow up with uh alcoholics and and you know then people that enable the alcoholics and you know they're not trustworthy you can't count on them to do what they say they're going to do well then it's just natural that those are the people that I'm going to feel comfortable in relationship with later even though I may not like it if that mm. makes any sense yes yes Maybe one last question about this particular topic um, before we transition to something else. Um, when those issues go unresolved, let's say someone is never transparent with their spouse and never communicate that they have those issues, does that sometimes lead to, I guess, um, can it lead to impotence or can it lead to other issues for people as far as like they just never get satisfaction being with their spouse I guess visually their mind is always thinking about porn or thinking about something else where when they're with their spouse it's not even as fulfilling you know because I guess it's too vanilla for them or whatever you know like if those issues go unchecked like what, what normally happens Well, with the sex addicts, if you remember, it always gets worse over time. But um, a lot of the porn addicts that I've worked with, their spouses, they notice like that their body is here, but their awareness is somewhere else. They're just kind of checked out. And all they ever want to do is get back to their computer. Mm. You know, some of them will stay up all night long and then have trouble at work the next day because they've been watching Mm. porn. And so, you know, they just kind of use up all their emotional energy on that and Mm -hmm. that becomes, you know, the, the issue. And then, you know, the, the hurt spouse, they're like, you know, I can't compete with these, you know, 18 year old airbrushed, you know, whatever. Right. (laughs) So then the spouse has like so much, you know, feeling like they're not good enough It really just does a number on the, on the spouse. Right. Yeah. It probably leads up to, um, especially years ago when we had the whole stuff going on with Craigslist and Backpage or, um, you know, people uh, getting involved in, you know, escorts and and things that nature, you know, sometimes uh, people kind of, have you seen people would go down that particular path? Uh, path if they kind of never you know deal with those issues well I I think that uh, the intentions behind getting rid of back pages and Craigslist like that I think the intentions of that were good but it's the same thing with like making drugs illegal Hmm. if people want escorts and prostitutes they will find them Hmm. that's the second oldest profession in the world um you know, in the opinion that I have, you know, maybe, or I'm sure it's not shared by, by everyone, but, you know, when, uh, when uh, prostitutes were able to advertise in those venues, then the need for pimps decreased. Mm. So by taking those away, and again, I understand the, the intentions, um, by taking those away, then pimps came back into the picture more Mm. right you know this is um this next question is kind of for you you know like you personally being a counselor like like how how hard is it so let's say if you have like you personally you have a bad day or or you're going through a challenge or or something like that can it play in your mind sometimes like you, you help you know other people all the time or whatever and when you're going through something like who's there to like help you or whatever well there's a saying in my business Behind every good therapist is a good therapist. Okay. So I have a therapist too. Okay. Um, and I talk to them regularly. And it's no accident. Like I work 
uh, I do therapy Monday through Thursday. And so after I get finished um, in my therapy office, I change clothes and I go right next door and I teach jujitsu. So that's a great, you know, release for me because, uh, you know, when you're teaching jujitsu or you're doing jujitsu, like you have to have your head in the game. Mm. And so if I've got my head there, if I'm kind of mindful in that, those classes, then I'm not thinking about, you know, what I heard in the, the therapy office, but, um, you know, I was telling you that I burned out after I was at DHR. Mm-hmm. And so my self-care has dramatically increased since then, because, you know, as therapists, we need great self-care to, to bring our best selves to our patients because they deserve it. Yeah. Okay. What made you get into jujitsu? So, um, after I had burned out, I was in terrible physical shape. I had just neglected myself. I didn't go to the gym or, you know, anything like that. So I actually started out doing, um, personal training and I will never forget my personal trainer. My very first session with her, she had me lay down on the ground and get up 50 times. Mm. I can't even remember how long it took me to do that, but I almost could not complete it. So I stuck with her and and got better. And that was when Zumba was first coming out and really big and it hurt my knees for some reason. So the only other option that was in our little bitty gym was uh, kickboxing, like Muay Thai. So I started doing that and absolutely fell in love. And so then there was um, a guy that had trained judo and jujitsu in Japan, which is different from Brazilian jujitsu that was um, kind of using the same space. So then I started doing that and I went to my first competition and absolutely got spanked by the Brazilians. (laughs) So then I joined the Brazilians. So now I'm a purple belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So it goes white, blue, purple, brown, and black. So I'm halfway to black belt. Okay. Okay. Now, how did you get into modeling? So um, I actually had the privilege of going to modeling school when I was a teenager. And I also got to take uh, photography as an elective. And so um, I started those classes because uh, I wanted to be in beauty pageants, but I was such a tomboy because I like rode dirt bikes and played soccer and stuff like that. I didn't even know how to walk in heels. Mm. So. <laughs> wow, wow. And so I ended up going to that, um, that modeling school and just had a, a great time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, then life happens and I'm only five, two, so they weren't like knocking my door down, wanting for me to, to model mm-hmm. for them. You know, they like for models to be tall. And then when COVID hit, my best friend had just bought a, like a real camera. Mm-hmm. And so I would help him by modeling. And then, um, you know, the younger models, can be flaky. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't show up. And so then it would just be me. So then I got to kind of um, get back in touch with all that I had learned. And so now it's like an, um, an opposite to my working to me, it's like a kind of like an artistic expression, but I really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. That's about to ask like, what, what, what do you love most about it? I like, um, kind of getting in character because again that's like kind of getting out of my my head I find myself doing the the pinup genre the most and so that's a lot of like facial expression and you know the the elaborate hairstyles and the clothes and all that it's just um it's a lot of fun okay um who has influenced you over the years wow um I guess I would say um, for the, these past few years, I've been really um, into like the principles of Buddhism, Mm -hmm. which I consider myself to be a Christian, but Buddhism pairs well with all religions because it's all about like me keeping calm, no matter what's going on. And so, you know, I learned the value of that with all my children because they're like 
two years apart. And when they were all teenagers, I was just like, ah. right, right. <laughs> even for my patients, you know, they need for me to be calm so they can almost like um, kind of cling to that in a way to, mm-hmm. to calm themselves. And so, you know, again, I was telling you that my, my favorite quotes, one of my favorite quotes was the first victim of strong emotion is reason. Yeah. You know, that kind of goes along with, um, you know, Buddhist ideas too. So I guess that's what I would say has been my, my greatest influence the past few years. Okay. And uh, how did you deal with COVID over the last two or three years and um, your patients as well? Well, that's very interesting because like when I was telling you, I moved from Jasper, Uh Birmingham area, Uh down here to the Gulf Coast. Um, I had been doing some telehealth anyway, just, you know, because of COVID. And so that kind of forced my hand because I was one of those diehard people. I want to be, you know, in your presence so I can see, you know, everything and all that. But COVID kind of pushed the envelope and made most of us do telehealth. So when I moved down here, I thought that um, some of my patients from Jasper, that they would stick with me with telehealth, but that I would have to find like a whole new group of people. Like it was going to be, you know, a big deal. Well, I have two patients in the Gulf Shores area. That's where my my office is and the jujitsu gym is. I have two in-person patients from the Gulf Shores area and everyone else is telehealth from Jasper. Oh, wow. So that's awesome. So they, everybody stuck with you. Pretty much they did. And that was very shocking to me, which, you know, my therapist was in Birmingham and I see her at, at, you know, through telehealth. So Mm -hmm. I just did it too. Okay. And uh, what are your goals for the rest of of this particular year? You know, you have any goals, things that you want to accomplish and get done? Um, I, I would love to, uh, be honored with the cover of a magazine. Um, I got published for the first time, um, last year and, you know, that was just, it was an honor for me, especially at 48 years old. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) so I would like to do that. And, um, you know, jujitsu, it, it really, challenges me you know really on the daily and so I just want to keep with that my my goal with that of course is to be a black belt and I don't care how long it takes me I'm still going to do it um and then that program that I was telling you about where I could blend like trauma treatment therapy with martial arts I would love for that to expand and I'm just trying to be open about like what would that even look like Mm. you know yeah things just seem to go better that way okay well i do this every interview i have i'm gonna throw a couple of rapid fire questions at you and use answers to the best of your capability and it gives the audience a chance to you know know a little bit more about your uh, personality okay. Okay. are you a model so who's your favorite model um i guess i would have to say um cindy crawford okay uh, favorite film? I'm looking at a Lost Boys poster that I've had since I was about 14 years old. So I guess we would have to go with that. All right. What do you do for fun? Uh, I do modeling and jujitsu. Favorite TV show? I don't really watch TV. Okay. Favorite actor? Ooh. Right now, at this moment, I would probably say um, Cuba Gooding Jr. Because of that movie, As Good As It Gets. That's probably what I should have said, is the movie As Good As It Gets with Cuba Gooding Jr. in it. Okay. Favorite actress? Ooh. I just cannot. um, There's just not one that, that comes to mind right now. Okay. Uh, you have a favorite recording artist? I have recently, I'm kind of slow to the, the game, but I've recently discovered Adele and I just really love her stuff. Okay. Favorite places to travel? Oh, um, 
I love New Orleans. Okay. It's just my place. Okay. Uh, hot or cold? Hot. And uh, two more. Uh, what motivates you? My my husband and my children. Okay. And when it's all said and done, uh, what do you want your legacy to be? I think about that a lot, actually. Um, I want for my legacy to be a legacy of recovery. Okay. All right. Anyone that's interested in learning more about your modeling, uh, jujitsu, or just learn more about you, uh, you can give them your, your social media handles and how they can uh, reach out. Yes. So on Facebook, I'm Sherry Socks, S-O-X. And then on Instagram, um, I'm Sherry the Model, S-H-E-R-I. And then that's also my name on my Facebook modeling page is, uh, is Sherry the Model. And then um, our jiu-jitsu gym is Gracie United Gulf Shores. All right, Sherry, I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to come on the, on the program today. And those of you who tune in today, thank you so much for tuning in to the Stage is Mine podcast. We'll see you next time. Take care. I want to thank everybody for their support. Those of you that have been watching all of our podcasts, if you're interested in donating to the Stage is Mine podcast, you can send that two ways via PayPal or Cash App. Our Cash App is Terry from the A and our PayPal is double E TV 101. Support this machine today to help us continue to do what we're doing. Also, if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the Stage is Mine podcast, email me today at double ETV at yahoo.com or call 334-498-5394. Thank you very much. I want to thank you for tuning in to today's program. Be sure to hit that like, subscribe, and notification bell for all things pertaining to the Stages Mind podcast. Until next time, take care. Give everything better yet, give your all. They don't want to see you win, nevertheless, show evolve. Want to see my demise, you can be in for a surprise. Cause the sun ain't about to set.